Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Today I'm going to take you through a biblical journey of what my understanding is in my good wrestle with sanctification. That's the, as a spiritual family, that's what we've been recently meditating on. Specifically the Lord's call for sanctification, evaluating our own heart state and our hunger in drawing closer in response to Him. So, that's where we're going to start. And uh, if you've known me for any period of time, you know that I generally start with the definition of words and uh, despite my appearance or maybe somewhat my appearance I will give you a definition of sanctification or sanctify. The word sanctify is synonymous and is joined with the word holy. Both words actually contain the same meaning. Now let me explain using yes the original Hebrew not Greek the original Hebrew. Holy in Hebrew is Kadosh and sanctify in Hebrew is Kadash. Now you say, well, that sounds very similar. It does because it has the same root meaning of set apart. That's what it means to be holy. This, uh, and the difference is holy is an adjective. An adjective describes something or someone. It's an, it describes a noun. So Kadosh describes someone who is sacred or set apart. Sanctify is the verb on the other hand, and it's Kadash, and it says that someone, you be holy, or be consecrated, or you be set apart. So that is why both sanctification, it's important to understand that it, it, it is joined, and it needs to be seen in the same light as the word holy. Let me illustrate this quickly um, using a, a scripture, and I'm going to do this visually for you guys. You can turn to Leviticus 11.44. And I'm just going to read the first portion of that. I'm reading from the, the good old King James, not the new one, just the, the traditional King James version. Uh, there's a lot of scriptures tonight. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of it, but there are some scriptures that we're going to camp out on. So Leviticus 11, 44, we're going to read the first portion of that from the King James version. It says this, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify, the Hebrew word kadash, yourselves and ye shall be holy kadosh for i am holy kadosh you see the lord calls the nation of israel to be holy set apart as he himself the lord is holy set apart like no other the lord being holy is core to the understanding of sanctification and our relationship to him i'm going to say that again the lord being holy is core to the understanding of sanctification and our relationship to Him. I'm going to give you the Bible Project def definition or their description of God's holiness and how important and pivotal it is. This is what the Bible Project says. God's holiness is His defining characteristic. His holiness, the holiness of God, is a term used in the Bible to describe both His goodness and His power. It is completely unique and utterly all-powerful radiating out from godlike from godlike an energy 
In fact, God's holiness is so overwhelming that it can actually be dangerous to approach. And they give a metaphor here. They say it is helpful to think of God like the sun. The sun is so bright and powerful that its energy radiates throughout our solar system. It is good. Helpful thing to be within the sun's energy. The sun gives life, but the sun itself is so powerful that it is dangerous to get too close. And I think that's a really great metaphor to understand holiness. And I'm sure you, with, you, you will remember that that reminds us of a story when Moses encounters the Lord through the burning bush and the Lord stops Moses in his tracks when he wants to have a closer look. The Lord says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. You see, the Lord is holy. He is set apart. He is unique in his goodness, his purity and his power. So much so that humans, after the fall of Adam and Eve, cannot fellowship in intimacy with him because we in our fallen man nature state cannot survive his presence if we remain unchanged that's why he calls us to be holy as he is holy that we may have fellowship with him the lord has always wanted to be near us and actually with us but he can't it's not him that needs to change or to be set apart but humanity and this is after the fall. So what does God do with humanity after the fall? How does he bring them back to a position where they can, where we can be in fellowship with him once again? Well, he does exactly what we're talking about. He starts to set people and nations apart. He calls them to the state of holiness as he is so that he may have fellowship with them. Throughout the history of man, the Lord has been setting people and nations apart so they can be near and with him. Right after the fall, God unfolds and begins his promised plan to bring humanity back into fellowship with him, calling them to holiness, being set apart for him. How does he do this? He does this, and we're going to do a quick, a quick timeline. He does this through a series of covenants. In the Old Testament, there's a series of covenants from Noah, Abraham, and Moses. The Lord chooses and establishes the nation of Israel as a family and a nation set apart, set apart unto him. The Lord promises to make them his own treasured possession, a holy and set apart nation. That is a phrase that you would have seen over and over in the old and as we'll get to also in the new, a treasured possession a holy set-apart nation. He will personally dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. The beginning of Isaiah 5 describes the sanctified favor of Israel being set apart and set up as the Lord's vineyard. And this is the first scriptures that I want us to turn to. And we're going to camp out a little bit in Isaiah 5. So if you can turn to Isaiah chapter 5, we're just going to read the the first two verses or at least this, the first part of the second verse so Isaiah 5 and we're just going to read the first few lines I'm reading from the English Standard Version the ESV Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 I'm going to give you some time to get there Isaiah 5 chapter 1 and 2 from the ESV this is what this is what Isaiah says let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted 
it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Again, we see another met the same metaphor and imagery, or I can even say parable, as Israel being chosen as a vineyard, rescued, in, and this is found in Psalm 80. So now I'll turn to Psalm 80, but I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah 5, or at least a bookmark, and turn to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, and we're going to read from verse 8. I'm reading specifically from the New King James Version. Psalm 80, verse 8 to 11 from the New King James Version. Listen to how similar it is. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You have prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and fill the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Can you see that in focus both these vineyard scriptures I've dubbed them we just read do you notice how much care the Lord takes to set this vineyard apart how he positions them the nation of Israel for optimum growth not just any growth optimum growth and abundant fruit if we turn if we look again at Isaiah 5 like I told you to keep your finger there if you turn back just read very carefully it says there he put them on a very fertile hill not an ordinary position on top of the hill and, and it's a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So there is no, there's nothing disturbing the soil or the fertility of the soil to produce the best and the abundance. And not only that, he planted with choice vines, the best of the best. And then he, pull, he built a watchtower in the midst of it to make sure no one comes in and steals or, or wrecks this vineyard. And he, and he hewed out a wine vat for what happens when the grapes are then plucked and, and harvested. Look at Psalm 80 from the second part of verse 8 and the first of 9. He said, you have cast out the nations and planted it. You see, the casting out of nations could be the clearing out of stones. You've prepared room for it. You've given it enough room. Maybe James and Vivian can give us more illustration of how important that is in farming. And you've caused it to take deep root. You can see how important and how the Lord truly sets Israel apart. After rescuing them from Egypt, he declares at Mount Sinai the following in Exodus 19, 5-6. I'll read it for you from the message. It says here, Out of all the peoples, you will be my special treasure. The whole earth is mine to choose from, but you're special, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we, we think maybe now, Finally, with the holy, set-apart nation of Israel, will want to fully experience the Lord in all His holiness. Surely now, they've been positioned, set apart through the series of covenants, the first series that we said, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And at Mount Sinai, He declares this set-apartness, this choice vineyard that is now set up. Surely now, no, alas, humanity, as humanity does, no, it doesn't take long for Israel to bow down to images fashioned by their own hands, rejecting the Lord's holiness and intimacy. In fact, while Moses was getting the, cover, the, the commandments, the, nations of Israel, the nation of Israel was setting up idols in their own hands, more comfortable to determine in their own eyes what is good and pleasing and who they should follow. So, 
What does God do? Does he abandon the human project? No, he doesn't. He never did and he never will. He enters into another covenant with Israel, this time through David. And it, with David, he established his promised kingdom. He did the choosing of the king this time, not Israel, not Saul, but an, a shepherd boy that was very young and overlooked and wasn't even there when his father, his own father was to set up the elects who was going to be the next king. He was overlooked by his own dad, his own biological dad, but the Lord did not overlook him and chose him to be his next carrier of the covenant. And David, we know, he, he won many wars and he brought peace and prosperity and fulfilled promises to Israel. Finally, now they are experiencing the promises that they have had through these series of covenants. Does this mean now they will fully experience the Lord in all his ways and his prosperity and experience him in, 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 the, in the way the Lord wants them to experience? Unfortunately, no. Again, humanity does what humanity does. Israel slips back to their old ways and they turn their hearts away from the Lord. In fact, just like their leader and the chosen King David, their hearts are corrupted through lust and violence. Instead of looking at the Lord, they look in other places to find fulfillment. Though the Lord remains faithful and through David's son Solomon, the temple, the physical temple is actually finally built to house the Lord's presence and holiness. So now he can finally dwell with them. But we know, again, as the history of Israel progressed, the temple became defiled by Israel's idolatry and injustice once again. And God eventually, God's presence eventually physically left the temple and willed that it should be destroyed. So when his presence left, he said, that is it. Now the temple is going to be destroyed. And after Solomon and his Solomon's son's reign, we see Israel dividing itself through civil wars and infighting, some of its territory falling to its neighboring oppressors. And this is the story of humanity. Now, it is actually here in this desolate period where we just read of the civil war infighting and neighboring oppressors taking charge of Israel and the Lord not being present in the temple any longer. It is actually here in this desolate period that Psalm 80 was believed to be referencing. The portion I read earlier from the psalm was the psalmist, psalmist remembering and hearkening back to the prosperous days where the Lord and his goodness was present and tangible like we, like we read as a choice vine and vineyard. But if we read the preceding verse of verse 7, we identify and we understand the plea of the psalmist. In Psalm 80, hope you're still there. If we read just the above verse that we read, verse 7 from the New King James, it says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Restore us. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You see, Israel is at a point of desolation. They're at a point where the Lord is no longer there. He's no longer felt. He's no longer tangible. And alongside that, the prosperity and all the blessings that they had is no, is no longer there. Now, if we continue to read the psalm and more of the psalm now, we'll, I'm going to dial into Israel that is set apart as divine imagery. The psalmist describes Israel without the tangible presence of the Lord as a destroyed and pillaged vineyard. That is actually what the psalm and the imagery of the psalm is. From verse 12, let's read from verse 12 of Psalm 80 all the way to 15. It says here, Why have you broken down her hedges, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproot it. 
Now that's important. We know the Jews and 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 their dislike for unclean animals like pigs. The boar, the the unclean, come out of the woods, the neighboring countries, and uproot it. The wild beasts of the field devour it. Verse 14, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine, and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you have made strong yourself. Can you hear the heart desperation of the psalmist, remembering back to the days where the Lord was present, tangible, felt, and his goodness and, and everything about him was there. He wants those days back in everything of his being. It's like a vineyard that is now being pillaged and destroyed and ransacked from everybody and anybody and it no longer resembles its former glory. The beseeching of the psalmist to restore Israel to resemble a fertile and fruitful vine in a vineyard once again. Pleading for more importantly and most importantly to understand not the blessings of the Lord but the Lord himself, his presence to return and bring back this vine from flourishing life. You remember we turned to Isaiah 5, and I hope your finger is still there. Let's go back to it, because the same prophetic outcome of a destroyed vineyard is the focus of Isaiah 5 too. Let's continue in Isaiah 5 from verse 4 and 6. What does it say from the New King James, Isaiah 5 verse 4 to 6? This is it's like the Lord talking here. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? How could I have not set you up better? for prosperity and fruit and abundance. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Verse 5, And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Capital M, this is the Lord talking about His vineyard that He has set apart. He says, I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Verse 6, I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned. Or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. Can you see how similar Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah describes what a vineyard looks like when the Lord is not present and He's not present and He causes no rain to fall on it, thorns to grow, lay waste, walls being broken down, and hedges taken away and burned because. They bring forth wild grapes instead of the good grapes that they were set up for. You see, this is the very, this vine and this imagery of vine and the metaphor of vine that I'm talking about today. It's crucial to understanding what I'm bringing across as being set apart. You see, the vine was a very important cultural and economic and economical thing in the, in the biblical times because it was central to everyday life. It is often used in scripture and we know the vine is used in scripture and you'll probably know New Testament references but I'm giving you real Old Testament references of the vine here. More crucially and specifically what I'm focusing on today is this passages that we've just read. A fruitful vine was a symbol of an obedient Israel. A fruitful vine was a symbol of an obedient Israel while wild grapes or an empty vine with no fruit spoke of Israel's disobedience. Can we see the two antithesis of a fruitful vine and a disobedient vine? A fruitful Israel and a disobedient Israel. Why is this vine set apart? That is the question we should ask. The Lord has taken such care 
such care to put this vine to set it up for success and not just any success the best of the best we said choice vines fertile hill why is he setting this vine apart what was the lord looking for when he sets it apart and we've just hinted at it he's looking for fruit and not just any fruit he's looking for good fruit the best fruit again if it's the vine is to bear fruit who is that fruit for like we know, is a tree's fruit ever for itself? I often ask myself that question. If the Lord asks us to bear fruit and we are the tree bearing the fruit, are we like it? Does a tree pick of its own fruit and eat of it? No, of course not. The last verse in Isaiah 5 clearly labels Israel as the vineyard and it tells us why the Lord has set Israel apart and what specific fruit he was looking for. Folks, this grabbed me because. Sometimes I think we don't realize how specific the Lord is in, in his, what he expects from us. And he's very, in Isaiah 5, the, the chapter that we've been camped on for, for most of today, just read verse 7 there. Isaiah 5 verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel. So if you didn't take my word for it, take the scriptures. There you go. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. This is what the Lord expects. This is the fruit. He labels it in the last two lines of this chapter. He looked for justice, good fruit, but behold, he got oppression, wild grapes or no fruit at all. He looked for righteousness, good fruit, but behold, he got a cry for help. Folks, the Lord looked for justice, real tangible justice. He looked for righteousness, which speaks of right relationship. Not only with him, not only right standing and right relationship with him, but more importantly, that right relationship being spread across to the people that they see, their neighbors and their fellow brothers and sisters. But behold, we got a cry for help. Isn't that powerful? Let me give you another Isaiah reference. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah 42, verse 6 to 7. And as this is the Lord being so clear in what he expects from the set apart vine and nation of Israel, he says here, Isaiah 42 verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. There's that word again. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, listen to that, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, plural. He's giving the nation of Israel as a covenant for all nations and a light for all nations. To do what? To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. The Lord sets apart Israel not only for them to be an example, to illustrate the benefits of the intimacy of the Lord. See, I think sometimes we believers, we think we're just meant to be a billboard and a brand ambassador or social media influencers, whatever equivalent you want to think of today. But the Lord wants so much more than that. He wants co-laborers. And this is what he called Israel to be. He wants, they were called to be co-laborers with the Lord in extending his light. In their set-apartness, they are called to be bridges of the Lord's goodness, not walls. Folks, this is what the challenge of Christ, Christian living today is. We are called to be bridges in the Lord's goodness, where people can, we can reach out and people can feel and experience not our goodness, not our light, but the Lord's goodness and light through us. And this is the challenge of today that the church has been challenged. Now, you, you probably read that 
and maybe Siobhan did too, reading those, that Isaiah passage is saying, those are messianic miracles, opening the eyes of the blind and freeing prisoners. You may be saying, Stephen, that's talking about Jesus from the covenant of Israel. And guess what? You're right. But let's look at another parable of a vineyard, this time from Jesus' own mouth, his own lips, as he directed, and he directs this parable to the chief priests and the Pharisees of Israel. So you can release your fingers from Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80, and you can go a lot forward to the first book of the New Testament, to Matthew 21. I want you to turn to Matthew 21, and we're going to read from verse 33 to 41. Matthew 21, verse 33 to 41. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, if you want to follow beat for beat. And we're going to read Jesus' own words on the matter. Because we know, of course, Jesus did fulfill those messianic pro prophecies. But I want to ask you a question. If he said we would do greater works, and when the word greater doesn't just necessarily mean more powerful, it means more of. Greater number of the same that Jesus did. Carrying on the, the ministry that he has done. Matthew 21 verse 33 to 41 from the English Standard Version. Let's hear what Jesus has to say to the Pharisees and the chief priests of Israel. The set-apart nation and the leaders, the most set-apart of the set-apart nation. This is what he says. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, as they did them the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, this is Jesus asking the Pharisees, he said, Jesus asks them, what will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees responded to Jesus saying, He will put out those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their seasons. This is a parable in the middle of three that Jesus directs to the Pharisees after they question in whose authority does he come and clean the temple. As he entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday, his first act as king was to clean the temple. And they took offense and they asked him, whose authority are you overturning tables? I don't need to say anymore. You know the scene. Now, did the opening of this parable not look and sound very familiar? Isn't that quite cool? I really love that in the Bible when we read Jesus' words in a parable form. And we see that it represents something very similar that we've read before in the story of Israel. Almost beat for beat of Isaiah 5, right? And, and Psalm 80. You see... The Lord setting Israel apart up for prosperity. And again, we can ask, why? Why does this landlord take such effort in the parable of Jesus to set up this vineyard for tenants? Again, the answer is for fruit, and not any fruit, good fruit. We read there, it said, When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get what? And to get whose? To get his fruit. I'm not going to do a contextual analysis of this parable, but I'm going to do a very quick explanation of the roles. It should be clear for all of us, and let's quickly understand the roles of the parable. 
We know the Lord is the land the, the Lord is the landlord or the master of the house. The vineyard, as I've described before, and as we can see again, is the kingdom of Israel. The tenants are the chief priests and the Pharisees, those in charge of the people of Israel, the mediators between the vineyard and the landlord, between the Lord and Israel. The two sets of servants were first the Old Testament and then also we can say New Testament prophets like John the Baptist being the latest victim. The Lord never stops sending servants, right? But just like they did before with John the Baptist, they, they, they killed him. And they do the same to the landlord's own son. And of course, this is Jesus Christ who suffers the same fate. It said there that we read, and they took him and threw him out the vineyard and killed him. Through this parable, Jesus strikes the heart of humanity's frailty, just like the timeline of Israel we went through earlier. The tenants, the Pharisees and the chief priests, reject the knowledge and understanding that the vineyard is actually the Lord's. Did you catch that in the parable? Instead of perceiving it as the Lord's, they said this is ours, is theirs, and they can do what they want with it. They wanted to have control and they wanted to give the fruit to themselves and not to the actual landlord who owns it. They wanted to enjoy the fruit by themselves alone. Even to the point of rejecting and killing the Lord's, the landlord's own son. Listen to what it said in the parable. But then when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. It was never theirs to have. They were there in charge of the vineyard that they may bring fruit for who? For the landlord, not for themselves. You see, they thought and they fought for the deception that the vineyard and its fruit was theirs and for their profit alone. To hoard, to control, to manipulate and take advantage of. The reality is the vineyard and the fruit was the master's and for his purposes. And his purpose is to bless others outside the vineyard. Remember the scriptures, Israel is a city on a hill, a light for all nations. And Israel, in like this parable, they lost sight of that. Ironically, through the Pharisees' own mouths, they rendered their own judgment when they answered Jesus. That came from them. They said, let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their seasons. Jesus put it plainly for them in verse 43 of the same chapter, Matthew 21. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, pointing to the Pharisees and the chief priests, and giving to a people producing its fruit. Folks, we are the new tenants. Through Jesus, we are set apart and set up for success, just like the nation of Israel before us. We now, too, are a royal priesthood and a holy nation through the blood of and of Jesus Christ. He entered us into this covenant that was reserved for the nation of Israel. This is echoed in the Apostle Peter's mouth, and I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. First Peter chapter 2 and 9. In the message it says, But you are the chosen ones by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people. But guess what, folks? The Master's expectation does not change. His expectation is the same from us, the new tenants. Good fruit. The second part of 1 Peter 2, from 9 and 10 says, God's instruments to do His work and speak out for Him, to tell others 
of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something. From rejected to accepted. Just like the nation of Israel, maybe even more, we have a greater testimony. We weren't in this covenant, but guess what? Now we are. We were the ones that were not set up for success. We weren't that privileged vineyard. But now through Jesus, he brought us into and we are the new tenants in charge of this vineyard. And the Lord wants the same. He wants good fruit. This is why he calls us to be set apart as he is. So when the people experience us, they experience him. We should not wall ourselves in and hide his goodness and his holiness under a basket, but share this fruit to all we come in contact with. Just like Jesus demonstrated, going through the darkest places to bring light. I think sometimes we forget that. Jesus went to the darkest places in order to bring light, because those were the ones that actually wanted him, needed him, and accepted him. We should not fear the darkening world, folks, but we should seek to burn brighter with and for the Lord. The only way we can achieve this is living a life of abiding with the Father and Jesus, which aptly illustrates as a vine. And this will be my closing scripture and words of today's sharing. And you know it already. John 15, and I'm going to just read verse 5 from the Passion. I am a sprouting vine and you are my branches. As you will live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stem from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. I'm going to read that one more time. I am the sprouting vine and you you are my branches. As I live in union as you live in union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. So folks, I trust you're blessed with my sharing and I'm thanks for this opportunity to share. I'm going to open it up to you now and I want to to hear if you have any questions or comments of of just my unpacking of, of sanctification and as a vine, how Israel and us again are set apart for him to bring good fruit. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, Come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.